Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Race IndyCar podcast. If you're joining us for the first time, this is the place where J.R. Hildebrand and I, Jack Benyon from the race, break down everything that's happening in the IndyCar series based on the races that have just happened, or we often have some nice little interviews between races as well. JR's here with me and he was late to recording this week, so what comes around goes around, JR. Don't forget that. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> How you doing? Did you enjoy the uh, the Nashville action? Uh, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but um, I definitely... You're not enjoying things a lot recently. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's definitely, I mean, you know, it's a crazy race. I think we know we know to expect that. They, you know, they, they sort of talked about there being some changes and some little things here and there. But when you, once you once you watch the first few laps of the first practice session, you kind of know that it's you're, you're you're set up for basically the same thing as last year. And these types of circuits, it's funny that the, you know, it came up a couple of times just on Twitter and social media generally about, you know, what if this was the last race of the season, basically because Nashville would be such a cool place to end the season, just the city of Nashville, like the, the, the place. Um, and I'm kind of glad that it's not the last race of the season because it's just such a, it, it's just because of the nature of the track, it's and a lot of the street circuits are like this, you know, like we, you could, you could say the same for St. Pete being the last race of the season or something. And it was a couple of years ago when it had a lot of cautions and it just, it just is the nature of the beast in terms of, and I think it's a, a part of it is just IndyCar street circuits in particular, like an F1 street circuit at the end of the year is it's a lot. It's we're just talking apples and oranges here in terms of what this is like. This is really gritty. I mean, the fact that the cars just make it to the end of the race after watching the race is, is something all, all of its own. Um, and so it's, I think it's something that we can expect. There's definitely, you can circle the Nashville street circuit race on the calendar now as like a guaranteed kind of WWF, like, you know, <laughs> kind of wrestling match just in terms of what's going on. It's it's the one place in the year that definitely satisfies the entertainment criteria as we like it or, you know, love it or hate it, basically, in terms of whether that's what you really think IndyCar racing or motorsport generally should be about. You're going to see some fireworks at this event. And uh, I guess I was I was glad to see in the end that despite all of the craziness over the course of the race that you did still have the cream really rise to the top over the over the event and you got to see you know through the lens of scott dixon and and scott mclaughlin and a a number of the drivers that ended up at the front um you did really get to see you still got to see the best of what indycar and and the best indycar drivers have to offer here um maybe not Maybe not all of them as a group, but but the ones that matter. And uh, 
you know, it's it's interesting having it be this late in the season because it definitely had championship implications in a way that other events wouldn't have. And, uh, you know, that's that's where we're at now. Let's uh, we, we've talked a lot about Scott Dixon this season, and I think we were I, I hope we were some of the people who kind of pointed out that, you know, when we got to the 500, roughly that, that first half of the season was a very typical old school Scott Dixon season where he doesn't seem to have done anything, you know, particularly outrageously good or, or anything like that. But he's, you know, he's in the hunt and he's he's in the mix. And, um, you know, I think a few people are maybe ruling him out or not taking him as seriously as they, they probably should have. But the, the Toronto win was the the kind of culmination of all the momentum that he's built over this over this season. And for me, it always felt a bit ominous that, they were just never really getting things quite right on that nine team and they were still able to be in position. And it was a bit scary to think that once they did start nailing it, that they were going to be, you know, really difficult to beat. And we're seeing that little kind of run that they've had now, very few finishes outside of the top 10 over the course of the whole season. And um, this race was the the icing on the cake for for him, I guess, you know, they'd, um, they'd had that problem earlier in the race in the, I think it was the lap 28 caution when we had that concertina effect at, at turn five and, and six and, you know, quite a few cars taken out in that Pato Award, Graham Ray Hall and uh, Scott Dixon took some some damage from that as well. And then uh, his wheel was kind of fused onto the hub uh, or, or I think it was held on by the brake caliper actually, which was, you know, tells you how hard that hit must have been to, to do that. And then there was some damage to the under tray as well. So they had to take a load of downforce off the car to, to kind of even the balance up. So uh, I've just got this image of Scott Dixon with his elbows in the air with a, a car that's kind of you know basically bent up like Marcus Ericsson's was last year but also you know his last stint he did 39 tires on one on one set of tires after uh just taking fuel on his uh lap 39 pit stop so you know you got this you know you got a guy with basically no tires left his his car's ill performing it doesn't have any anywhere near the downforce of any of his rivals and yet it doesn't really matter whether it's Scott McLaughlin the, the fastest driver in the race by quite some margin like Colton Hurtle last year or, or Christian Lungard, who had much fresher tyres at, at the stage that he was attacking him and, and wasn't able to get past. And it just felt like a very vintage Scott Dixon win. You know, once you put him in that position, it didn't matter whether, whether the wheels were coming off the car, whether he had no downforce, whether the front or the rear wing had gone. Like he was, there was nothing that was going to stop him from winning that race, basically. <laughs> yeah, I think there's there's a couple of things that stood out to me relative to Scott's to Scott's race. One was, we've seen it happen before where Scott is... It just on the back foot leading a race and manages against all odds to keep people behind him. Like mid Ohio, maybe like three years ago or something when Felix was, if Felix was going for his first win at Ganassi and had way better tires than Scott, like you're watching Scott's onboard and it's just like, it looks like it's looks like the tracks wet for Scott and it's dry for everybody else. Like it's just, it, you know, and he, you know, maybe he was only going to hang on for that lap. Like Felix was for sure going to blow by him. And then he was going to put like five seconds into him in one lap, you know, after that. And he just manages to hold him off. I think this is, there's a little, we've talked about this with, with Scott. We talked about it with Alex Pillow. I remember us having this conversation about both of those guys together just in handling the mayhem of the first lap incident at uh, Portland last year that it's like they they're driving with eyes in the back of their head, you know, like they just have they're so good at what they do and they're so in tune with their performance, their car, the situation. They've got this like little bit of extra bandwidth. They've got this ability to kind of not 
be needing to be you know even just visually focused on any one thing like their peripheral it's like you you can kind of imagine yourself like as if your peripheral vision just expands like a little bit wider than everybody else's like they just have this spatial awareness that only comes that only the very best have this ability to kind of just innately know what's going on around them and and that enables them without having to think too hard about it without it having to be pre-planned without them having to go in go into every corner like you know readjusting and it being this stressful thing like you see it become for even a lot of top drivers that end up they just get out of sync with and caught off guard by the car that's behind them you, where you've got Scott Dixon and a few of the other guys that operate at the top of the IndyCar series, he's just like, you, it never even really looked like Scott uh, McLaughlin or Christian or any of the guys that were behind him through that whole final stint. They never even really got like a good look at passing Dixon, who's in a car that's like clearly just a, you know, POS compared to compared to theirs for sure. So it's one thing I think one thing is just to really, you know, we'll have a little Scott Dixon, Scott Dixon appreciation moment here. Like he just has this zone that he can go to. That's very comfortable despite all the chaos that's going around him. He's prepared for like whatever is going to happen here and manages to just place his car in, in the right spot. Every corner, get the exits you know, he gets the exit off of every corner. So he's really just not under threat in the next braking zone. And he can position his car just such that you're not, you're not even really going to think about it. Like on that last lap, there was just, you could see there was just nowhere for McLaughlin to even really, you could see he, you could see that he like thought about like a big lunge in a couple of places, but Scott just had him covered by enough and had his car, an extra like six inches to the middle of the track that it's just like, yeah, no, it's just not, it's just not going to happen. And McLaughlin was smart enough not to, not to force the issue basically. Um, So just the little things that you can pick out about Scott Dixon's driving and his ability to make that work were, you know, we, we, we they go totally under the radar. It's hard to notice them, but, but they're, they're really massive in terms of being able to pull that off because He's in a situation there where as soon as he gets passed by one car, he's getting freight trained by a bunch of cars, probably like you saw that happen over the course of the race. As soon as you got stuck offline, as soon as you lost momentum, whether it was from the front of the pack or from mid pack back, it just, you know, there was nothing you could do at that point. So he had the benefit of clean air. I think he understood that that was where he was going to operate best. That was the only place that his car was going to work. Okay. Has a, a mild advantage, maybe if if you're to pick anything out about his situation, the fact that he is running less downforce, basically, probably as long as as long as you've got a guy like Scott Dixon in the car who's not going to make those errors and overshoot a braking zone or whatever. There's a little advantage in that with a bunch of restarts that just corner to corner, you know, point to point, he's got a little bit better straight line speed probably than the cars that are around him. Um, so he, he kind of played that to his advantage to a degree. Um, but yeah, I just, just super impressive. And I think the other thing that I want to touch on here is 
just how impressed I am with Chip Ganassi, or Chip Ganassi racing, like across the board, it's impressive. The, the degree of like the storm that's swirling around this team over the course of this season and still currently happening from that perspective with Alex Pillow and they've got a championship leader in Erickson. They've got Dixon who's kind of in the mix. They've got Pillow who's, you know, they've got an active lawsuit against and he's like still in the championship hunt and in position to potentially win this race. And there's all kinds of, you know, Jimmy is, is I, I think probably in these kind of situations, a little bit of a distraction once you get to the end of the season, just in terms of you have to pay attention to everything that's going on with him. He's got his own trajectory and his own, uh, you know, ascent, I guess, from where he's at. He's trying to make gains. He's trying to continue to kind of, look for those breakthrough moments. So there's a lot of things going on here that are not altogether very cohesive in terms of what's going on within this organization. And just to see like over the course of the weekend, I think one of the things that really stood out to me was just the level of um, calm, I guess, when they when you talk to management, when you talk to the engineers, when you hear those interviews, when you hear those little sound bites of just where everybody's at. And I think what really stood out, particularly this weekend, was just the level of um, accountability that different members of that organization were taking for different thing that, things that were going on. Just that the quick interview that they did with Michael towards the end of the race giving Scott as much credit as, as he did giving the driver as much credit as they were for him being able to just like them knowing that he's just, if they can just stick him in kind of like a functional situation that he's going to go out and, and be able to do it. The degree to which they obviously trusted their ability to go out there, Chris Simmons on the timing stand. I mean, you got to imagine when Scott comes in for that first pit stop, when the car's all screwed up and they're trying to, they're like wailing on the wheel to get it off. You know, Simmons is like back there, probably just like eyeballing, like, okay, how much of the diffuser is screwed up? Doing a little math in his head, like how many turns of front wing do I need to take out to account for that? Just there's this level of, I don't know, just trust that they have within each other, despite all of this crazy stuff that's going on that I I just, I don't, I'm not used to maybe, maybe because we're doing the pod, like, you don't, I don't pay as much attention to this. Usually if you're just a competitor within the championship, but this year in particular with Ganassi, uh, it's been, it's been really impressive to see and not something that I've noticed in this way like from within the industry before and uh all together that's it's coming together at the right time for the nine car i think in particular here so as as we look to we we you, you mentioned that earlier in the season scott was really unhappy with the way that some things were happening it was clear that they weren't firing on all cylinders it didn't really it didn't didn't feel like this was really the type of season that as everybody's getting better, as Aero McLaren SP gets better, as Penske gets more dialed in, it seems like Chevy's taken a little bit of a step in terms of, you know, their road and street course performance, at least for sure. Okay, Andretti's a little like 
still all over the place, but you've got overall the tide is rising within the IndyCar series. It doesn't seem like the type of scenario where a, a nine crew and a Scott Dixon can continue to just not have things click and stay in the mix. But the fact that they've been able to turn this around post Indy 500 this year and have gotten better relative to everybody else weekend to weekend in terms of their ability to execute. Uh, it's just, it deserves, I think saying something about how well that team has managed this adversity. And I, I just don't, I don't see that as something that everybody's able to do. Yeah. I can back you up with a little stat there that I worked out over the weekend, which was over the 14 IndyCar races this season. Ganassi have had at least two cars in the top 10 in every single race of the season, which is a absolutely spectacular number. And even looking at Penske, they've had two in the top 10 in 12 of the 14 races with three cars. So to contextualize that for, I guess, like who who, who comes next? Um, obviously, McLaren already got two cars, so they're not really a fair team to, to slot into that. So then you've got Andretti, who've had five races in 14 where they've had two cars in the top 10 so it just shows you the the level that Penske and Ganassi are performing at the moment especially Ganassi as you mentioned right Jay I want to get into the into the meat of the stories that kicked off obviously after the race but first I just wanted to very very quickly mention Scott McLaughlin because it seems like it would be criminal not to mention him after his his pole his second pole of the season um you know doing that in front of the the last race where his family who've been over since the the Indy 500 they're they're heading home after this race so this was the last one and to get a a pole in front of them was a a really nice experience for him I I know and I just um wanted to highlight his kind of post-race comments because you know it's it's clear now that Scott is not a driver who's going to be happy with finishing second uh, at any stage anymore he's 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 risen to another level as we've discussed, you know, many times on this podcast. And whereas he probably would have bit someone's hand off last season to take a second place in his rookie season, you know, that is not something that he will accept now. It's just something that's beyond that. You know, he, he, he's thinking well beyond that now he's thinking championship and, and race wins. But what he did say was that this race was arguably one of his favorite of his whole career and that the car was the best car that he'd ever driven, which was, you know, I find it really difficult not to like Scotty Mack, um, He's a he's a really funny character and and someone who you just you just know that the heart is on the sleeve at all times and that he's you know he's he's telling you exactly what he's thinking in his head and anyone who hasn't listened to our our podcast with Scott definitely go back and and pick those up via whichever podcasting platform you listen to because whenever Scott talks it's an entertaining listen and whether that's him playing FIFA and eating spicy cheese in the in the rain delay before the race or whether that's him you know delivering some of the most impressive performances we've seen in the IndyCar series this year in just his second season of you know proper single seaters it was I think it was definitely worth a mention I guess we should move on to to the Grosjean Newgarden incident and I just want a quick take on this JR because I think this has been probably done to death a little bit now on, on social media and we've had plenty of uh, comment afterwards but uh, for anyone who didn't see the race there was a, a move that Joseph Newgarden made on the penultimate restart where he jumped past three cars which was incredible in itself but the the third car he was going past Roman Grosjean he made contact going with into into turn nine so I guess just before I give my take on this Joe I, I wanted to get yours as a driver how you felt about this incident and I guess in the wider context of we've got this kind of uh, I don't like using the term let them race because it, it kind of goes back to, to NASCAR a few years ago and, and what they were trying to do with, with their racing. But it does definitely feel like we've had a string of incidents now like 
you know, Toronto, Alexander Rossi and Felix Rosenquist is the one that immediately jumps into my mind where you think that's, you know, for me, that was a hundred percent nailed on penalty and, and to not give a penalty, it kind of sets a precedent that you could be aggressive and you can put people out of a race and there's not going to be a consequence for it. So, um, yeah, what was your what was your take on the new Garden Grosjean thing? Were you happy with the, the move that Joseph made or did you think it was over-aggressive? Where, where do you stand on this one? Well, I guess I think that the fact that there was no penalty, anybody asking for a penalty in this situation needs only to just review how penalties have been assessed thus far in the season to know that there's not going to be one. And that's just, you know, period, basically, like that's the final decision here. He was alongside. We've seen situations where drivers have not gotten all the way alongside, like Felix at and Alex at uh, at Toronto, and not been assessed a penalty. So I, I, I was not expecting there to be a penalty here either. Um, I guess in the in the Kirkwood, just as another reference point, Kirkwood stuffing it in on David Malukas. I guess Malukas was assessed a penalty. For avoidable contact afterward was is that correct? I think they were just uh, they were uh, just uh, assessing the incident, right? But uh, I think for me, Kyle was definitely the aggressor there. He was the one to blame for that incident happening. Uh, well, totally. I but I, I whatever. So that maybe that aside, the in looking at Joseph's situation, okay, he had a big run on Alexander. He was the car that was immediately in front. So basically, the coming to the restart, it was Grosjean, Herta, Alex. Joseph. Joseph's on fresher tires by a little by, you know, a half a stint or something compared to those guys. He's going to the front or he's, you know, in his mind, he's going to the front. He's gets a big run, gets jammed up. He's for sure going to get Alex is his initial sights are set on Alex. Colton is offset of both of those guys to the outside. So he's kind of like he's getting a big run on Alex as Alex is in the middle of the track already relative to Colton. Like he's jamming up. Colton's kind of getting hung out on the outside of those guys. So he's like, you know, Colton's left fronts left front is at the right rear of Grosjean and, and Rossi is like kind of jamming in down behind Grosjean with Colton to their outside. Um, Newgarden's got this big run on Rossi. So he's basically kind of already to a degree going three wide just because Rossi's come in the middle of the track. So he's going to get Rossi and by default Colton like one way or another out of this deal because you can't, you're definitely not going to end up going three into one Colton in, in, in Alex and Colton, I think both kind of predicted this whole situation at that point and obviously managed to stay out of trouble. They actually both got back by, they avoided Roma and got back by Joseph at corner exit before yellow came out before anything else went down. So that part of it, I think I saw that coming from a long ways back that that was going to happen. And then I think in essence, what, what transpired to follow that was that everybody just stacked up and the inside was open basically inside of Grosjean. Grosjean didn't really cover off the inside. I think he's probably looking at his teammates behind him. He sees that if he did glance in his mirrors, he's seeing Colton off to his right. So that's not a threat at all. Rossi's right behind him. So that's not going to become a threat. Um, So he doesn't really have like a reason necessarily to more aggressively cover off the inside. 
is is overslowed for the apex basically and so joseph you know breaks a little less hard basically and gets down on the inside so i guess that all happening to me was not altogether there was nothing wrong with that i guess it's definitely opportunistic to end up where joseph was at the apex and if i've got a problem with this whole thing it happened it's happened a number of times here um the the issue comes with the fact that i think that joseph basically was going to need all the road just to get through the corner at that point so he's dependent on and i thought the same thing about kirkwood and malukas when that happened that as the as the car making the pass he's basically dependent on grosjean to completely bail out and give him the entire corner not just that not just the apex of the corner but like from the apex almost all the way to the wall at the exit to avoid there being an accident. Um, I thought that was even more the case with Kirkwood and, and Malukas, frankly, like that. It was a little unclear to me, like, is Kyle going to make the corner at all anyway here? I mean, I think he was going to, but one way or the other, both of these incidents are an example of a, and a, the, the aggressor, the driver making the pass doing so with so much speed still at the apex that like he's at his like kind of normal apex speed, basically not we're going to go too wide through this entire corner to the exit of the corner. And it's going to be a drag race to the exit. Like, you know, he's not going to be able to pinch the exit enough for them both to make it through the corner. So that to me basically brings up it's, it's, I guess it's a question for going forward, how race control wants to handle these things. Um, it, from a, in a, in the larger, if you take away the context of championship and where they're at in the race, it being the end of the race versus the beginning of the race or whatever, if you just take the incident in isolation, if you take all of these incidents in isolation, like if you just said they happen in the middle of the event and it's early in the season or something that, you know, it, what it, what it really brings up is do the drivers need to have a conversation about like how they want for this to go down and and ultimately it's a, it's reflective of the respect that they have for each other i think and just just in the way that joseph sort of talked about it at the end of the race and and he's he's not alone in this we've heard this from a number of drivers over the course of the last 2 years uh, Rama is not somebody that I think guys feel bad about racing super aggressively like this because they've seen him do it and they've either been victim of him doing it or they've just seen it happen enough or they're they don't like the way that he does this or that around the track or whatever like he's just you know good bad or other like however you want to frame that he's not a guy that people have that other drivers seem to be like looking out for from that perspective like that they're they're not going to give him an extra inch just because because they they're not going to give him the same space that they would give scott dixon we'll put it that way like would joseph have done that if that was scott i think probably not you know like he would have not gone in there with quite that degree of like throwing caution to the wind basically i think then you then you have to add in the context of what's going on here which is 
Joseph is, we've heard this from him throughout the course of the year. Like, I, I think it's, it would be, he says that he's always super motivated. He's always super determined. He's always, you know, all of these things. I just think from the beginning of the season, his tone has been different than in years past. Like he's carrying a bigger load than he has in the past. He's got a new engineer. He, he's, he's not been given just this. He's not been given his Chris Simmons at Penske. He's not been given his guy that they're just going to, as a group, for a decade go on like a big roll and really get super, you know, he's had a new engineer every couple of years at Penske. Um, he, he, cl- he clearly had something really strong going with Gavin Ward. Then Gavin takes off to go to Arrow McLaren SP. Um, I think he's obviously getting on great with Eric, his new engineer this year coming from Pratt and Miller. Um, they've obviously been able to extract a lot of performance together, but it's just not, you know, it's not really been going their way. We've seen him be more frustrated than he normally would come off, I think, at various times throughout the course of the season. We've seen him be a little bit more emotional when things are going well in a way that we aren't really used to seeing. Um, and here in this particular situation, I think he's just in like, okay, F it. Like, I'm going to the front. I don't really care. I don't care who's in my way, really. It's not, as long as it's not one of my teammates. Like I'm fed up with being on the back foot here when I've got the car and the pace and the ability and the performance to be running up front, you know? And, and I think that all of that is in my mind, a little bit of what's going on here that resulted in him just not giving an extra inch in this particular situation and then not being particularly apologetic about it afterwards. I think like to me, that's, that's just kind of like, look, whatever I've been, I've been, you know, moved around. I've been other people's punching bag here over the course of the race, just trying not to get an accidents myself time to flip the script. I'm, I'm going to the front. I don't care. Like, I don't care who's in my way. Really? Like nobody's giving me the respect that I deserve as Joseph Newgarden and, and, and a championship contender here. So forget it, you know, like that, that to me was sort of what was, that was, that was the, the, that was like the emotion that I was sensing from watching it, watching it all go down. And, and like, can I, can you blame him? Like, I don't know. I don't, I, cause, cause I totally get it. Like as a driver, I just think like that's, when you look at Scott McLaughlin, he just didn't have that kind of race. So there's other guys that are running up at front that weren't victim to all of this stuff over the course of the event that they're, they're just doing their thing and plugging away at it. And they're in a totally different headspace. If that's how your race has gone, you know, Joseph was like, they, they pitted him with 45 to go or whatever. And just the whole thing was kind of like, I'm sure he's just sitting there like, what the hell is going on? Like, why am I not just up front with those guys? Like this should, this could have easily been much more straightforward. All right. It's fine. It's the final stint. I got to throw this whole thing on my back. And, and that just is what it is. So I, I guess to me, when, when you factor in all of the, all of everything that's going on here, the way that race control has been managing these things, the way that his race has gone, the fact that he, I'm sure in his mind feels like he should be, much more convincingly in the title hunt here at this point, whether, you know, that's probably not something that's going through his mind mid race, but it's a little bit of an underlying, you know, thought just in terms of where they're at. Uh, 
coming off the back of some of these things that they've been dealing with at Iowa and the rest of it. Um, I guess I feel like that's that that all comes together to culminate in in what we saw. Yeah, just to continue uh, the theme, I guess on that incident, I don't want to uh, take this on too much longer. To be honest, uh, I think we've, you know, I think you've done a good job of kind of highlighting the the situation. The the thing I don't like is the 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 retribution aspect of this, or the 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 what goes around comes around approach when people are getting put in the wall. Because uh, I think in the same way that I don't like how we get multiple safety vehicles parked stationary stationary on the track, and you know, particularly that 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 caution under lap 26 or 27 where Dalton had his helmet off and was stood inside the barrier wall. So it's technically still on the track and we had eight or nine safety personnel running around and we had guys like lighting their tires up coming through turn five, because that's just the nature of turn five and an Indy car at slow speed. Like there's not a lot you could do about that, but the, the, the cars are not fully in control in my opinion. And you've got a number of people on the track and stationary vehicles, which I believe to be very dangerous. And it's a similar situation where I don't think the, I guess, I don't think the, the reasoning for someone going in the wall should be, well, that person's done that to somebody else before, or that person's raced aggressively before and they deserve to be in the wall. Because for me, you know, this is a street circuit. These are indie cars full of fuel. There, you know, the, we shouldn't be encouraging accidents, basically. And I, I know this, this whole thing has been very entertaining uh, from from a fan perspective. And and to see this kind of, you know, everybody looking after themselves type approach is, you know, fun to watch and, and interesting. I, I just feel like it's not something that should be encouraged, really. And I think we should be coming down a lot harder with penalties on drivers who are put out of the race for for something they haven't done. Now, saying that. I definitely don't think Roman Grosjean's, Roman, Roman Grosjean's innocent in all this and that I'm totally defending him because he was totally... If, if you look at... I was really interested, Jay. I actually noted it down on my pad while you were saying about the... When you were breaking down the actual, like, let's call it the technical aspect of the crash. So you said that Grosjean needed to give up the whole corner for that, for, for there not to be a crash there. So if we rewind a few laps and go to the Marcus Ericsson incident at turn 11 where Grosjean threw it down the inside of him. Ericsson saw Grosjean come in and stood on the brakes and gave him the corner and just said, all right, I know this guy's aggressive. I know this guy does this kind of thing. I'm in a championship battle. I'm going to bail out of this and and let him go. And then Marcus gets hit from, hit from behind by the next guy and is taken out of the race. Now, that is not fair on, on Marcus at all. You know, he's, you know, he's not come out of this, you know, particularly bad. He's still only 12 points behind in the championship and, he's still only come out you know 12 points behind in the in the championship but he's definitely suffered from from that move and him having to react to that move so i I get why the drivers are are calling for this and they're you know they're saying some people deserve to be treated how they're treated but i still think you know it could be it could be pleased better what do you think about the the race in general jr in terms of uh, i guess it's such a it's a race that divides opinion so much and I've I've written a feature on this so hopefully by the time you're listening to this podcast you'll be able to go to the hyphenrace.com and read my musings about this race but I basically just did what what I do in quite a lot of situations is just wrote down like in a good and bad column like what's good about the race and what's bad about it so my my good column is it's an, it's an exciting track um you can come from a lap or two down and still win the race like we've seen that twice now <laughs> we saw multiple drivers doing it in this race um and and just not 
you know, Dixon was obviously the one who came out on top. There's a lot of overtaking. The bridge is a great dramatic backdrop and we don't race over water anybody else, any, any other track in, in the series. So that's cool. Um, and, and yeah, the drivers, uh, I guess the drivers need to take advantage of, of the kind of insanity going on and, and make the most of it. And I, I guess the bad parts are there's too many cautions. The starts are probably in the wrong place. A few drivers kind of saying how dangerous the closing speeds are on the, on the bridge. And obviously the start had moved from the turn 11 to turn one, uh, sort of part of the track from last year. And, uh, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's the drivers have agreed that that's the right place on the bridge to, to do it with the closing speeds. It takes a long time to clean the damage up. And I guess the qualifying situation is particularly difficult here where we get red flags. And obviously we saw in the, the first qualifying group earlier in the weekend, we saw two red flags and, you know, multiple drivers not being able to get uh, a good lap in. So I guess those are just some of the, the good and bad aspects of it. Where, where are you at in terms of how this race is earlier it sounded like you were kind of describing it as basically like a points count in nascar all-star race or something like <laughs> yeah basically like like if, <laughs> if we this would be a perfect event to have on the schedule and like they'd probably add more of them like this if we had a playoff style you know situation <laughs> like a this would be like the last race before the playoffs start in nascar you know like let's not do total this total mayhem and but whatever, like somebody's going to win and somebody's going to get into and it's going to be a big thing. And, and at least then at that point, if your other championship contenders don't get they get like taken out of the race or something, then you don't have to care as much about that. Right. So in the context of, of IndyCar and like a real racing championship in terms of the way that the points work, <laughs> at least. It's it's just a little I, I think, you know, it's I and I, don't, I have not looked at the diagram of what are other streets they could use and this kind of stuff. But it really fe- to me, it really feels like the the four, five, six, seven, eight complex on that end of the track that that's really if even if you just looked at over the last two years, where do the majority of cars get taken out of the race? Where do the majority of the where do the majority of the incidents that cause long long yellows reds all that kind of stuff it's just because it's absurdly slow and absurdly tight through that area of the track if you want to be able to get through a race it's not you know obviously i think the cars look actually really cool like the the kind of uphill fast right left into like when they get the angle right there when the cars are like in qualifying trim even it's like man the cars look really like that you can really see them moving and bouncing around. They're struggling for traction and that's cool. Like I'm, it's cool to see an IndyCar have to work that hard and really be able to see it. But the reality of it is for the race, just these, you know, having a couple of corners that are that slow, all stacked up together. It's just, it it just ends up inviting there being a mess and it invites there to be a track blockage. Like, it just and to your point, it ends up being because the cars are so hard to drive at anything less than like 50 miles an hour. When you're driving around under caution, it's even kind of unsafe through that area. So I I guess to me, like. There's there's got I'm sure and I'm sure they're thinking about this like this is this is not something that that, uh, you know, is we're not saying anything that nobody else has thought of, but trying to figure out if there's a way to open that section of the track up, even if it's running down a different, a different street, a different part of the road to just make it so that there's fewer of those corners back to back right next to each other that cause that big stack up 
on restarts because that's just uh, you know that to me is definitely a part of this otherwise i don't really know you know we've had tracks that are i mean i think back to the the street circuit that we ran at brazil in um you know, I think back to the street circuit that we had at Brazil and after it was it was kind of a similar you had a bunch of tight 90s that were all together and then opened up onto a straightaway. So it's like we go to other tracks, even St. Pete, that section through there is we, we go to tracks that have these kind of more compact sections. They're just not quite that compact. And by opening the up, opening them up just a little bit, it makes a pretty significant difference. Like having some of those corners be, you know, 45 mile an hour corners instead of being 30 mile an hour corners actually makes a pretty big difference in terms of, you know, not in terms of cars being able to just roll a little bit more speed to keep up with the car in front of them through there, basically. And so because everybody knows all the drivers know that as soon as there starts to be a little bit of a stack up, they're like going for the clutch paddle because they're trying just not to kill the car, basically, if they've got to really slow down. And so so all of that is just you've got these couple of areas on the track that really I think they're they're problematic in a way that it's not going to solve itself without somehow adjusting that. Like you can throw any variety of rules and you know, sort of mashup of ways of, of kind of regulating some of this stuff. And it's just going to be what it is from that perspective. Um, you know, I guess in the big scheme of things, I, I'm not, I'm not altogether mad about having one race on the schedule. That's kind of like this just because it does, it does throw a, throw an event in here. It, it should it be this close to the end of the season? Like, you know, I don't know, but it does throw an event in here where you're going to see some things get really mixed up. And I think it's, it's, it's a case where unfortunately, and in this, in the context of this race this year, um, unfortunately you saw that happen to some guys that needed a little bit of luck to go their way, right? Like Pato award deserves, none of this right like he he was completely minding his own business he's he he was doing the right thing right <laughs> like a little bit like marcus letting grosjean go in in his scenario like pato was doing the right thing to try not to bash into the back of willpower after it got stacked up in front of him and what happens well he just gets drilled from behind and like his race is over at that point, you know, this, I mean, it's happened three times to Pato this year. Pato, Pato has been like one of the most mistake free drivers this entire season, actually. Like the only reason that he's not leading the championship right now is because of things completely out of his control over the course of the year. And that deserves saying something about Marcus was in a little bit of the same situation, but altogether has kind of had, if you look, look at the season so far relative to the rest of his championship, the, title contenders you'd probably say he's the, he's had things kind of go his way a little bit more than other guys have so it's an event where you can have you know a little bit of like recalibration of just where things go because it's just such overall a different event like coming out on the right side of this does require a different set of skills and a different perspective and a different overall approach um than than a lot of other races on the schedule so it's kind of like I'm I'm definitely not on the side of take this off the schedule because it ends up being such a mess. I think that it's a it's a great thing to have here. It's an awesome 
event venue to go to. It's it's a great market to be in. Like there's a lot of other things in terms of just IndyCar racing that are good about us, you know, having this event on the schedule. We just, you know, I think they just need to find some ways, whether they be creative ways of adjusting the way that the circuit works as it is right now, or finding some ways to make some of those adjustments to open places up on the track uh, to just try to mitigate some of what, what has become like unavoidable messes over the course of the season. Like to your earlier point, there's parts of this track that are just like, if you're going to have 20 something indie cars driving around and you're going to have starts and restarts, you know, the way that we have them, you're just going to have these kinds of things happen at some point. And they don't, they're not even going to be anybody's fault. Like that whole first, that whole first stack up. Okay. You, you obviously have like, you could point to Graham, not, seeing that it's stacking up in front of him enough or something, but the car behind him was going to run into the back of him. If he didn't do it, it's like, can you, is, is there even something in particular that you can point to there that caused all of that? Like nobody knew they interviewed everybody about it afterwards. Everybody's like, I don't know what happened. Like it just, everybody was like going slow and we were trying not to crash and couldn't. So that to me, that type of thing happens very rarely over the course of the year and happens a lot here. And so that I guess to me is like the biggest single problem. The only other thing I just, while you were talking about the pros and cons over the course of the weekend, I got to say, like, I, I feel like we need to, especially because qualifying is on Peacock, like there's not a TV window that we're looking out for. I just don't understand why we don't have guaranteed either guaranteed green flag time or like a, a red flag countdown timer or something that, you know, like, okay, at a point, maybe you have to decide we're not going to just allow the session to, to go to keep dragging on. But um, that's a situation where to me, the rules can affect this. We saw it happen at Toronto as well. Like there's, there's one element of these things of, all right, it creates for a little bit of a mix up that you might not otherwise see in terms of what's going on. But when it comes to qualifying in one of these championships, like I'm a hundred percent on the side of what do I want to see out of qualifying? I want to see what the best drivers actually have to offer here. And we're, we're seeming to get that somewhat. We're not, we're not consistently getting that out of IndyCar qualifying on street circuits. And that does seem avoid, avoidable to me. Yeah, 100% agree with that. Um, probably the most sensible thing that's been said in IndyCar this year. Um, definitely think that should be factored in for the future. Um, yeah, excellent. Let's uh, let's crack on with Alex Pelot, I guess. Uh, just wanted to mention him briefly as he was on the podium. Obviously, in the context of all the things you were describing earlier with Ganassi having so much going on behind the scenes, and obviously he's being sued with the team, and the the lawyers have the the, the first meeting this week. So I don't know if we'll. I think it's probably unlikely that we'll hear anything significant this week, but at least the the process is is starting and, and getting underway. Uh, a very big thank you to Brian Smith, who after last week I asked people to send in what we should call the polo section that we seem to run every week at the moment based on what's going on with Ganassi and, and McLaren he said we should call it the polo down which I really like what do you what do you, are you a fan JR is that acceptable should we make a mutual yeah that's yeah, it for sure yeah, I agree as well so thank you Brian Smith for for tweeting in with that that's a a great call so when we do more of the polo down in the future we'll definitely make sure we call it that and you can head to the hyphen race.com 
for the story that broke just after we'd recorded last week's episode, which was a very, very similar situation involving a very, very similar team uh, in over in F1 with Oscar Piastri potentially uh, replacing Fernando Alonso and then kind of saying that he wasn't really going to do that and that there was going to be a bit more of a complicated situation going on and that he might not race for the team that he was supposed to race for for the next season. So uh, absolutely zero relevance to IndyCar whatsoever. But yeah, you can go and check out and, and read about that uh, from last week. JR, uh, just wanted to wrap up. Obviously, we've got a, a bit of a break before before Gateway now. Have you got anything big going on? Anything uh, interesting to, to tell the listeners? Uh, not in particular. I mean, obviously just looking forward to the wrap-up of the season um, on the IndyCar side. There's a lot of things, I guess there's not even just in my world, but there's a lot of things, you know, yet to be sorted for next year. So uh, it'll be an inch, it's it'll be interesting as this kind of goes on. I've obviously got got plenty of my own, th- and th- own things rolling for 2023, but nothing nothing to talk too seriously about now um, are you gonna be in the 10 car next year <laughs> gonna be in the 10 car no i'm not gonna be in the 10 car <laughs> next year although i like i have found myself wondering more about that like what do you think is the latest so just for the sake of argument let's say that alex isn't in it because we're sort of assuming that that's how this is going to work out one way or the other what's your latest point of view on on who's in the mix for that because it sort of seems like maybe some of the obvious candidates in Bordet, Ryan Hunter Ray, those guys don't really don't seem like they're in the frame. Um, you know, I, it made me wonder about some of the other sports car guys. I know that they've been really impressed with Alex Lynn, but you got to assume that he's just locked in for the Cadillac deal as well. I mean, who's who's on the outside looking in of this that that seems like they're lined up for it? Well, obviously, we had the story break last week that Felix Rosenquist potentially hasn't signed a piece of paper with McLaren for next season and could be available. So uh, he'll be one that will be linked to that seat consistently. Um, I, I don't think that's likely based on uh, obviously he left Ganassi to go to McLaren. So the I don't think that'll I don't think the the bridge will still be uh, still be rolled out for him there. I think that might be a difficult one. I think do you want to know what I'd do? I'll tell you what I'd do. So I'd put Marcus in the ten. And I'd put Linus Lundqvist in the eight, and then you've got the best of you've got the best of all worlds there. You've got, you know, you potentially you can keep Marcus with all the people that he's with now that obviously he's won the five hundred with and and done so well with, or you can move him over to 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 have the ten crew and uh, work with those guys as something a bit fresh and and something new to start a, a kind of new era of him being an established you know IndyCar driver who you know shouldn't have to pay for his seat anymore and should be you know a paid professional driver. Uh, you know, in his own right as a as an Indy 500 winner, and I think you know it's it's obvious that Linus is good enough to to race an Indy car next season. It's obvious that he doesn't have the budget, and there's not going to be a Honda engine for Dale Coyne to expand with at the moment, unless something significantly changes there. So, the best of both worlds is you you bring Linus in, he'll have a bit of money hopefully from winning the Indy Lights Championship if he's lucky enough to to win that and he can do a either a partial schedule or, or a full-time schedule with Ganassi and he can be evaluated at the end of the season whether he deserves to to stay on and, and get another shot and Marcus gets a, a seat that he deserves that that'd be uh that'd be what I'd do Joe any chance that Malukas gets the gets the job so I uh, actually wrote a feature on David which you can go and read on the race uh, on Saturday and he, he basically says in that that he's um, at some point he will race for another team that isn't his dad's team which is a really cool and interesting thing to say for someone who's, you know, raced for his dad's team for so long. And, you know, we see that in motorsport sometimes and it seems like the, the separation is never going to come, doesn't it? I'm thinking of obviously Lance Stroll and people like that. And I guess in Formula One, you feel like he's going to race for his dad forever. But yeah, David, quite happy to point out that 
you know, at some point in the future, I'll definitely be racing for someone else. And that's also another option that they move David over to Ganassi and that Linus takes the, the coin seat that, that obviously David would um, vacate. So uh, I think all of this is going on in the background now. I know Ganassi are putting feelers out and they've spoken to teams about various drivers. So um, I, I think Malukas would be a, a good shout, you know, and I think he's someone who's, you know, shown a, a lot of pace over the last, well, since the Indy 500 week, basically. And we know that's where Ganassi really took a shine to, to Alex Pillow was over the, over the course of the Indy 500 um, in, in 2020 and was so impressed with his, his rookie uh, campaign there. So, yeah, I think that's totally within the realms of, of possibility. I think we're just probably a tiny bit too soon to really get a realistic picture of what's going to happen. Like, Ganassi doesn't know yet what's going to happen. So, you know, I don't think yeah, we right. can really say something that is, you know, at this point, I can only speculate because... I don't think a decision's been made and I don't think they've decided which way they want to go. But I definitely think uh, Malukas and, and Lungvist are, are potential key players in the in the whole thing. Because if you look at it, it's just not really any drivers available that, that Ganassi are going to want to put in the car that are going to be of the standard of, of that team. So I don't really see it working out in, in many other ways other than them, you know, dropping a car down or, you know, Jimmy goes to a, a part schedule. But, you know, everything... All the noises that Jimmy makes at the moment are that he wants to continue as he is and he's happy to, to continue going. And if he wants to do that, then I don't think there'll be a problem in him doing that. So, um, And what, do, we, what yeah. do you make of the the like Devlin DeFrancesco 29 car rumblings? I think there's definitely, um, well, not definitely. I think there's likely to be some, some movement there. I think there's definitely, um, let's call it a situation going on there where, you know, I'm pretty sure Andretti are talking to, to other drivers and other teams at the moment and, you know, I don't want to, you know, speculate about contracts or or anything like that um, when we've not actually seen the contracts. But I'm I'm fairly sure that there's been some movement there, and that there's a very good chance that Andretti will select another driver to to take over that seat next year. Um, I'm at the moment I'm hearing that it's you know pretty unlikely that Devlin's going to be back in that seat, and that the you know the the decision does seem to have been made. I think that has been a very complicated, a very complicated story that maybe hasn't we've not heard all of it because of various things that happen in the background and a lot of these things are complicated when it comes to sponsors or or, or money or contracts um as we've seen over the past uh, the past couple of months and i think there's there's many elements to this story that have not been reported and that aren't public knowledge but i do think the the end result of this is likely to be a, there's going to be a seat at ganassi uh, andretti and um i think there's a a very uh, significant big name that's going to be on the market for next year. That if I was Andretti, I'd be I'd be going after him. It's Felix Rosenquist, right? Is the you know who else do you take other than one of the Indy Lights guys? Yeah, if they're in a position to fund the seat completely, I guess. I mean, that seems like that's that's been the car more often than not. That I mean, obviously it wasn't you know with Hinch being there, he wasn't bringing any money to that deal, so it's not as if they can't fund it. I mean, but they you'd have to. You'd, You'd have to think if Devlin's not going to be in the seat next year that they have a plan for being able to fund it themselves and it's not dependent on them just bringing in another driver that's bringing their own sponsorship. Well, again, if we look at, you know, we don't know the actual numbers in contracts, but you have to assume that Kyle Kirkwood's being paid a lot less than Alexander Rossi was being paid. So there's likely to be some wiggle room there that they can make a deal with Felix work, I would have thought. Yeah, sure. Well, we'll we'll see. (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of speculation and I, I think we're I think JL we're about 
maybe a week or two away from having a really significant kind of picture of what's going on and having a much better idea of what some of these teams are doing because these these things just keep getting kicked into the ballpark don't they it's like you know one minute Felix Rosenquist is like totally wrapped up and unavailable to any IndyCar teams and the next minute like he might not even be under contract and is like basically free to do whatever the hell he wants like and that's that's happened in the space of like four days so we'll definitely um I think we definitely need a, a period of just things leveling out and uh, people working out what they actually want to do for next year. And that's all we've got time for on this week's episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. Thanks very much, JR Hildebrand, for joining me as always. Make sure you like and subscribe the podcast wherever you listen to it online. Leave us a review. Hopefully it's a five-star one, but if it's not, we'll let you off. And make sure you email any questions you have to podcasts, that's with an S at the end, at the hyphen race.com we're interested if you've got any questions for jri or if there's anyone you want us to get on the podcast let us know we're we're an open book you can email us anytime we're looking forward to the next round of the championship which is a gateway another short oval so that'll definitely throw up some surprises and we'll be back soon for another episode of the race indycar podcast The Athletic.